Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Thank you. Uh, I'm Jim. I'm an alcoholic. First of all, I want to thank Pixie for asking me to speak tonight. Uh, it's an honor. Uh, 38 years ago, I wasn't being invited many places, and I sure wasn't being invited back. So um, this is nice to be here. It's not often you get to speak in front of two or 300 people where you have every crime known to man represented. And, um, and, and we're not in jail for it right now. Uh, there's a guy at work that knows that I was giving a talk tonight. He knows I'm in the program. And he said, what's it like, you know, talking in front of a bunch of alcoholics? It's, it's got to be a lot like Rotary, right? And I said, no, not exactly. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's like talking to a bunch of people where, uh, uh, you know, we're talking to a group of people where we're unwilling to give up a lifetime of failure without a struggle is kind of what it really is. But... Uh, <laughs> I'm glad to be here tonight. Uh, before I get started, there's a, a young man that's not with us anymore. Many people in this room knew him, a man by the name of Nat Wiley, and he succumbed to uh, one of the side effects of uh, the consequences of alcoholism. As much fun as we want to have tonight, as much fun as I like uh, being up here and having a little fun, I want to remember his family and him and the price we pay for this disease sometimes. So uh not gonna give a moment of silence for him, but just uh keep in mind that uh you know keep keep him in your prayers and his family in his prayers because he left behind a, a young son. And this is a serious deal. If you're uh, new to Alcoholics Anonymous, we'd like to welcome you. Uh, there's uh you know for your standpoint you may be coming to a meeting, but what you're really doing is you're coming into a new way of life. And if you stay with us, I promise you, your life will get better. You probably brought a lot of consequences with you that hadn't gone away yet. If you stay with us, we'll help you with those. Uh, you walk five miles into the woods, you can't, you've got to walk five miles out, but quite often you can get out quicker than you got in. And those of us that's been around here a while, uh, we, uh, we know what you're going through, so please stay with us. You don't have to, uh, live the way you used to live. I, uh, my sobriety date is February 18th, 1979. If I don't screw this thing up in the next 35 days, I'll have 38 years of continuous sobriety. And I, uh, they weren't applauding me that way in 1979. Now you tell you that. Uh, I, uh, I, the humbling part about that is the fact that when I got here, I was losing my wife, my kids, my family, and I didn't know how to stay sober, and I wanted a new way of life. The humbling part about being up here now is I've been here long enough to look back and see what I've been given in Alcoholics Anonymous, and what a privilege it is. I love AA, and I love what goes on in these rooms, and uh, I owe it to people like you that have been with me over the years. Um, I was a maintenance drinker. In between binges, I'm not. A <laughs> I, uh, I I grew up in Texas. Uh, I'm not ashamed of that, by the way. I was uh, I was out uh, West Texas uh, a few years ago, and there was an old guy that I ran into, and he had the the sweat stained saw, uh, straw hat and the the roll your own cigarettes, and um, he looked kind of old and gray and wrinkled up from the weather, and he uh, put his foot up on the fence post and he kind of leaned forward and said, son, he called me son, it tells you how old he was. He, uh, he says, son, you never have to ask a man where he's from. If he's from Texas, he'll tell you. If not, try not to embarrass him. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, I, and I'm not that bad. I, I think I grew up wanting to leave. Um, you know, I ended up out in Arizona. I, uh, I was at work. Not long ago, and a guy came in, he was kind of bragging a little bit about all the places he'd been. And I kind of got tired of listening to him. I was kind of hoping he'd go away, but he said, Jim, you do much traveling. I said, well, I've traveled a little, not a lot. And he said, well, where have you been? I said, well, I've been to Athens, Rome, Moscow, Paris, Italy, been to uh, Palestine. What I didn't tell him is those were all towns in Texas, you know. I finally got, I, I got, I, 
got him out of the way there. But, but uh, I love those old dance halls, beer joints, honky tonks down there. You know, the finer places were called lounges. Uh, a, lot, a lot of places uh, would be like a stage up here. You'd have a, a band up here playing. You'd have chicken wire up in front of the bandstand. So when the fight broke out, you know, you'd have a group over here dancing, a group over here fighting, and pretty soon they'd go back to dancing, someone start a fight, you know, someone dancing too much with an ex-girlfriend or, you know, some old drunk cowboy or something. But um, I love going into those places where you, you had the uh, neon signs and the layer of smoke about eye level and and uh, pool table over in the corner. You could hear the balls breaking. There's a stale smell of cigarette and uh and beer and, and the sawdust from the dance floors. There'd be a jukebox in the back, played country music. Uh, and I'm not talking about that stuff they try to call country today. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the good stuff. We're, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're talking Willie Whalen, Ray Price and Hank Williams, the good stuff. But, um, I was back in, uh, back home this, this summer for my 50th high school reunion and I was, uh, Spent three days in Katy for my 50th high school reunion, and I was going back as, as always. I tried to go up to Austin in the hill country, and I was got, driving down a road called the Devil's Backbone. I was kind of between New Braunfels and Blanco on my way to Lukenbach, and, and as I was driving along, there was a reader uh, board that I, I caught my eye, and as I got up a little bit closer, I read it, and it, it had an error that pointed off to the left, and it said, Riley's Tavern. We have beer colder than your ex-wife's heart, you know. <laughs> and, uh, that caught my eye, and I pulled in, uh, and that's some cold beer, I can tell you right there. But uh, right next to it was a place called the Devil's Backbone Tavern, and I went in, uh, inside. There's they got a different version of it now, but it, at one time they had a Colt 45 pistol that's hanging on two wires from a ceiling over the bar. Behind the bar, there was a big sign that says, we do not call 911. And uh, I don't know. Love those places. Um, but uh, things are a little different down there. A few years ago, uh, Debbie is not the wife in my story. Uh, but a few years ago, uh, her mom was sick, and we were going in and out of Canada quite a bit. And she said, we need to get some Nexus passes. And a Nexus pass, for those who don't know, is basically a credit card. You uh, you slide it through a kiosk, and uh, you get across the border a little bit easier. So we each sent in uh, $50 and filled out our applications, and about three weeks later, Debbie got her application back requesting an interview. I got my application back uh, rejecting my application. So we called to see what the problem was. It uh, turned out I got a DWI when I was living in Arizona, and uh, I didn't really consider it that big of a deal. It was point one. Uh, point one's happy hour. Uh, you know, uh, like what's point oh eight now. I don't think Alanons can drink at point oh eight, but I really shouldn't even have gotten that. I was driving through Flagstaff on Route 66. Police officer pulled me over and said, Mr. Hayes, the reason we pulled you over tonight is your license plate is on upside down. Now, all the officer wanted me to say was, thank you, I'll change it. My comment was, officer, you're full of shit. No one is that stupid. <laughs> so uh, he asked me to get out of the car, and I stumbled a little bit as I got out, and I went to the back of the car, and I was as surprised as he was. It was on upside down, and I, I oh, apparently I'd, you know, I had the swing shift. I was an electrician in a sawmill at the time, and I had the, the swing shift, and I'd usually start drinking early afternoon. I Got home one night in a snowstorm after I'd been drinking, tried to put it on, apparently got it wrong, but uh, but I don't know what I told him. It was something to the effect of, you know, also kind of crap doesn't bother me, but if it's a big deal to you, I'll flip it over and be on my way. He said, well, let's do a fuel sobriety test first, of which I failed, and uh, he took me downtown, gave me a breathalyzer, of which I failed, and then uh, they let me, uh, they, they released me to the custody of my wife at the time, who had had as much to drink as me. So I hired an attorney, uh, spent about $500 in Flagstaff, got some things expunged and reapplied, sent another $50, another application. About three weeks later, I got another rejection letter back, and we called to see what some problems were, and uh, got some problems in Texas now. <laughs> Debbie was getting really upset with me. She said, make a list. How many DWIs did you get? I said, I have no idea. 
See, Texas had a law on the book in the 60s that said you could drive and drink as long as you weren't drunk. And that left a lot of uh, judicial discretion and a lot of, uh, you know, depends on who you were, gave the law a little bit of, a, of an out in terms of uh, how they ruled in your case. And in my particular case, I grew up in Katy, and I was going to college in Huntsville, and I don't know how far it is from Katy to Huntsville, but at that time it was about a 12 to 18 beer trip. <laughs> and, and I would usually be... Uh, too drunk to go any further. I get to Conroe, which is about 30 miles from uh, from Huntsville, and I usually uh, sleep in the back of the last beer joint I was at, or maybe every now and then I'd I'd, I'd sleep in uh, the parking lot of a grocery store. But every now and then I would uh, take a little detour out Highway 105 to a little town called Cut and Shoot. And if you've never drank in Cut and Shoot, Texas, you've missed something, I tell you. It's a little place out there called Pat and Larry Butler's 21 Club. It is one of those chicken wire places, and uh, Larry Butler uh, kind of helped Willie Nelson get his start. And um, But you go out there, and his wife, Pat, worked the bar. And I don't know really what she looked like, but my memory of her was this beautiful lady with long, dark hair, and she had these magnificent cowgirl outfits. One night she'd show up with turquoise, and the next night it would be yellow or pink always matching hats, matching boots, and it was worth the trip out there just to watch her serve drinks. But I was coming back into town, and uh, apparently I misgaged my sobriety level a little bit uh, and uh, decided to go on into college. Fell asleep at the wheel outside of the city limits of Huntsville, and I went off the road, hit a mailbox, went across the road, through a ditch, through a field, across the parking lot, hit a parked car, drove it into an apartment building. <laughs> Guy comes running out with blood running down his face, and... Uh, Please show up. You know, I was watching an interview one time with a lady on Channel 5, and she says, yeah, I was sitting there watching TV, and the next thing I know, I hear this big crash outside my wall, and a car hits my, my apartment. What they should have done is interview the driver. I mean, his adventure starts about a mile and a half up the road. You know, when you hit the wall, the, the thrill's gone. But police, police showed up, and uh, I... Uh, he had my car towed, and then he told me to get in the car, and I was going to ride up front with him, and he said, I prefer you riding in the back. <laughs> we were going through town, and I, uh, I was still giving him directions to Jackson Hall. I said, we're not going to Jackson Hall. They took me down to Walker County Jail, and, and they gave me a blanket and a steel bunk, and uh, I, uh, I woke up the next day with some guy about my age. His hair was messed up, and his eyes were bloodshot, and he was looking at me across the room, and he says, boy, is this your first time in jail? I said, yeah. And he said, don't worry about it, son. You'll get used to it after a while. And uh, I never did. There was something about those uh, metal doors, those steel doors, as soon as they hit that concrete, that echo, you knew you weren't going anywhere, and you had that loss of freedom. It, it took me a few trips, but they came and got me. Uh, I didn't go to court. Judge Gates met me outside of uh, the foyer of his office, and he said, you're a student. I said, yeah. He said, uh you have finals? I said, I have finals. He said, well, take your finals, call your dad, come back and see me this afternoon. And I didn't take my finals, but I called my dad, and uh, my dad showed up, and him and Judge Gage talked about me for about 10 minutes, and for the next hour and a half, they talked about hunting, fishing. You know, they came out, Judge Gage came out with my dad, and he says, son, I like your dad. Uh, he deserves better than what you're giving him, so this case is closed. Uh, I don't ever want to see you here again. Didn't go to court. It was just until Canada got hold of it, I totally forgot about it. But um, a few months later, I got my car fixed, and I was back in Houston and uh, ran a stop sign. And at that time, I had a habit of throwing my uh, empties in the back floorboard of the car. Police officer pulled me over and said, how much you had to drink? And I said, two. He shined his light in the back floorboard of the car. It had 48 empty cans and bottles back there. And he said, I thought you had two. I said, well, they're the top two. So, you know, I went went back to jail, called my dad, you know, came down to bail me out. But, you know, that wasn't how I was raised. Uh, I was an only child. I grew up in a town of 1,300 people. I was in athletics. I was a good athlete. I was an okay student. Uh, didn't get in hardly any trouble. From the time I was born to the day each of my parents died, they put their arms around me and say, Son, we love you. You're the most important person in our life. Mom and Dad didn't miss one scholastic or athletic event that I participated in for my whole high school, except for one. My dad had a heart attack in 1965, and Mom left him at the hospital to go to the football game. 
My dad was the kind of guy that would come home. He worked every day. He'd come home, have a cup of coffee, go to town. He'd have two beers before he came home. And after two beers, he didn't treat mom any different. He didn't treat me any different. But after, uh, after I started drinking, see, alcohol had a different effect on me. I took two drinks, and it set in motion that phenomenal craving created a mental obsession. And after a while, the alcoholic life was a life that I started becoming accustomed to. My dad was the kind of guy that could go down and borrow uh, money just on his word from the bank. And he always taught me, he said, a man is only as good as his word of honor. And I really believed that, and I really wanted to live that way, but I found out after a while that's not a philosophy that went real well with alcoholism. My mom uh, was responsible mostly for me being in church and kind of giving me what she felt was uh, a good uh, background to build my life on. I didn't get in a, a lot of trouble. We got in a little, got a little mischief every now and then. My, my friend Stan and I, uh, we had this idea we're going to steal the moose horns from the taxidermist office. And I was hanging off these moose horns about 10 foot in the air and city cop came by and he shined his light down low and I was hanging up high trying to get these things unbolted. And he was, uh, Lonnie Templeton was a retired Harris County officer, and he was well past his prime. He shook so bad. You know, the old joke was if he ever shot at you, don't move, he couldn't hit you. But his, his police car was a Ford Fairlane four-cylinder. He didn't even have an emblem on the side of it. He used to ride through town with his lights off. And Stan and I had a siren hooked up to our car, and, and uh, we followed him one night for a mile and a half with our lights off, hit that siren, pulled him over, you know, but I didn't. I didn't... Uh, I didn't uh, get in a lot of trouble in high school, but uh, my earliest memories of Jim Hayes, and I don't know where they came from, I'm not okay. You know, I didn't have any reason in the world. I sponsored guys that have every reason in the world to become alcoholic and to have a bad childhood, but that wasn't my case. My earliest memories that I'm not okay. And I spent my childhood and my, day, my days drinking and quite a while even here trying to fix problems in here with solutions out there. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, you people taught me that if I take care of what's in here, this stuff out there is going to be okay. I didn't know that then until I got to, to AA. I was standing outside of uh, our house on a Christmas Eve one time. I don't remember when it was, maybe uh, 16, 17 maybe. And some uncles were passing around a bottle of I.W. Harbor. And I and that bottle came around. I said, can I try that? And they said, well, don't tell your mom because she'll kill us. And she would have. But uh, I turned that bottle up, and I don't remember it burning. I don't remember anything bad about it. I just remembered I made a conscious decision that night, as sure as I'm standing here, that alcohol is going to be part of my life. I love the way it felt. I love the way it felt being with uncles and cousins I felt a part of, and alcohol was going to be part of my life. And I didn't drink a lot in high school. My first drunk was up in Austin, Texas. It was Ron Rico Rum and Falstaff, and that was... Uh, I didn't know alcohol would make you sick, um, and I didn't know you'd get hung over. I was hung over for about five days. It was a long time before I could drink rum again. I got past that. But, uh, my, uh, my second drunk was a year later. It was uh, cherry brandy and Budweiser. It got worse. Uh, I started drinking Thunderbird. Uh, you know, what I liked about Thunderbird, one, it was affordable, but what I really liked about Thunderbird was it had a twist-off uh, top. You'd have, to, you'd have to have a mess with that cork. Stan would come in from college, and uh, we'd get a fifth of cherry vodka. And we'd get out, we'd go goose hunting about 4.30 in the morning. We'd be out on the goose blind, get to drinking that vodka, and by 6 o'clock, sun be coming up, and we'd be blowing goose calls at each other. And we'd, we'd stand up, charge the pond, guns blazing, geese flying everywhere. The other hunters trying to get their limit. They were shooting at everything that moved, and Stan and I'd reload, go at them again, and we sank about seven decoys one morning. That's about all we did. But, <laughs> but um, you know, I uh, I got out of high school, and uh, you know, I went to work for electrical contractor, and uh, I started hanging around these guys. And I love those stories they told on the, the 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 drinking. I was sitting in the back of a bar, and I was underage, and they would put a seven up in front of me and I'd have what I was drinking off to the side somewhere. My job was to watch out for the liquor control board, but I started drinking in June of 1966 and by August of the same summer I was drinking alcoholically. 
we went down to New Orleans, about four of us, and uh, we uh, we've been at the Playboy Club. One of the guys had a Playboy key, and I still got a picture of me and a bunny. I was barely standing up at the time, and that bunny's awful good looking. I pulled out a picture of her over the other night. She's very very pretty. Then I realized that based on the picture and the time that that was taken, she's probably 75 years old now. But uh, but uh, I enjoyed the picture, you know, it's old, old memories. But we got thrown out of our hotel. Uh, one of the guys we were with was about his football player, about six foot four, two thirty, and he was crawling across the lobby on all fours, barking like a dog. And the manager met him at the landing, and Brandy reached down and bit his ankle, and, uh, and we. So we we were staying out at the we got booted out of there and we're out at the Tulane campus, and I remember getting on the St. Charles trolley, going past these old mansions early in the morning with a hungover, and I went down to Bourbon Street by myself at 9:30 in the morning. I was sitting at Pete Fountain's club, and I had a Manhattan, and I said, "Oh my gosh, this is the way to live. This is I'm going to be okay," and I just started. I I knew, but there was three things that was happening to me that wasn't happening to Stan. And it wasn't happening to the other people that I was drinking with. I was blacking out at a very early age. I was passing out and I was falling asleep at the wheel of a car. I was coming out of Huntsville one night and I'd been drinking all afternoon and uh, about one o'clock out on Highway 1960 on my way home, uh, I fell asleep at the wheel or blacked out. I don't know. I came out of a blackout and I was coming at a bridge. And I swerved real hard to miss this bridge. And I was in a little 62 Falcon. It was back before they had seatbelts in the car. And I caught the right rear tire of that Falcon. I flipped upside down on the roof of the car. And I was going across the bridge about 200 feet. And I caught the grass on the other side, spun about three times, crawled out through a window, lit up a cigarette. And a couple came by and uh, said, you know, is that your car? I said, yeah. I said, you're lucky to be alive. I said, yeah, I am. He said, would you like a drink? And I said, no, I saw how this got started. And, but um, I uh, I started, I got a new car. A few months later, I was going back to school, and I uh, I got to the county line, and I ran into some guy at some cowboy bar, and uh, he and I got to talking, and we got a gallon of wine and a case of Lone Star and took off the other way two hours back the other direction to Houston, Found a couple of gals. Uh, they didn't speak English. Uh, we probably paid for. I don't. We, we probably paid for their company. I don't know. But uh, no one would be with us free of charge. I'm sure. But uh, we. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what happened to them, and I don't know what happened to him. But I came out of another blackout uh, the next day back in my hometown in a hit and run, and did not know how I got there. You know, the one that still gets me is I was nosed up to a guardrail at Interstate 10 at 2 o'clock in the morning, sound asleep, and some guy wakes me up, and, you know, and I kind of get a little upset with him, and I start swearing at him, start my car back out, and leave him standing in the middle of the freeway as I drive off. But, you know, I don't want to minimize driving and drinking. I know that there might be some people in here that uh, have lost loved ones or people they're close to because of people like me and people that uh, do drive and drink. I don't want to, I don't want to make light of that. It's a serious deal. But my story is, as I've been fortunate with the fact that one of my character defects is I haven't taken anybody's life. And I'm, and I'm grateful for that. But I don't want to minimize how serious that is. Drink myself out of college. You know, that's not a big deal. Particularly, I would imagine most people here, uh, if we're in this room, we probably drink ourselves out of something. But the big deal about that is uh, my parents worked real hard to send me to college. From the time I was uh, started school to the to my day I graduated, uh, they said you'll always have a college education, and uh, they worked real hard. See, my dad had a seventh grade education, and his dad was a traveling school teacher, and he. Uh, he always admired men of education, and he wanted him and mom both wanted to give me something neither one of them had a chance to do. And I went to them, and uh, I broke their heart. I said, I'm not going to do it. See, I would rather hang around people in bar rooms. I'd rather hang around uh, people that uh, I didn't even know because I'd rather drink than uh, honor the dreams of the people that love me the most. And it seems like that's what we do as alcoholics is the people that love us the most and sacrifice the most for us are the ones that we hurt. I remember when mom and dad died, uh, I never even bothered to put up a tombstone. It wasn't because I didn't love them. 
It was because I never could balance, buy a tombstone, get a drink, buy a tombstone, work it into the budget. My intentions were always good. And that's kind of what happens. You know, we judge ourselves by our intentions and the rest of the world judges judges us by our actions. And uh, the al- actions that I had as a practicing alcoholic were uh, were not those of self-esteem and uh, things that I would be doing today. For my 30th AA birthday, I went back to Texas and uh, I'd made amends to my parents' spirit over the years to the best of my ability, but... I felt like there was a little more work to be done. So I went back to Texas and I spent, uh, the first stop I made was I spent about three and a half hours at the cemetery. And I made, I guess, the usual amends that we make for the things that we did wrong. But what I really got a chance to do was I got a chance to thank them. I got a thank, uh, chance to thank them for the start that they gave me in life, for the sacrifices they made for me. And I got a chance, so. Uh, Got a chance to tell them that I'm sober and I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous and my life counts for something now. And I got a chance to say, I think you like the people I hang around and you like the way that I become. See, I don't know about anybody else, but I believe that when I pass over into whatever is after this life, they're going to be two of the first people I see and I want it to be clean. And I believe it is. I, uh, After Hurricane Celia Celia hit the South Texas coast, I uh, went down to Corpus Christi, and I uh, found the only bar in town that, uh, you know, had a generator set up to keep the neon signs going, the beer coolers going. I stayed down there for a couple of days, and uh, I I went down to Kingsville, which was a little bit further south, and uh, I was sitting in a little place one night called the Brass Monkey. And I've been, I've been in this place all, all, all week long. And, uh, there was a girl that worked behind the bar. She was a graduate student. And, uh, we got to talking. And one night she came over onto my side of the bar and we got to talking and we hit it off pretty good. And I was going to take her home and I got up to go to the restroom. Some guy followed me into the restroom and said, you know, he was going to take her home. So we went outside to settle it. I went home alone. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I uh, I think I left Texas with an 0-10 fight record. I wasn't too good at that. But I, I got a little altercation one time uh, down in a Houston bar. Uh, we went outside to settle that. And uh, if you're new here, you're still drinking, and you're young enough to make some changes. Uh, I don't know why people always want to go outside. Don't go outside. Bad, <laughs> bad things happen outside. You know, uh, stay inside. Um, but me and this guy went outside, uh, I guess, to do whatever we were going to do. And I reached in the glove compartment uh, of my car for uh, for a pistol. And as I reached in the glove compartment, it dawned on me, Jim, you don't own a pistol. <laughs> so uh, we, had a, we had to do a little talking on that when we went back inside. I bought him a few drinks. And, uh, you know, we hit it off pretty good. But uh, me and that gal, uh, we hit it off, and I have no idea what prompted the idea, but we thought it'd be a good idea to get married. And we started this path together, and uh, we went on our honeymoon. I was a pretty good husband for about three days, and, you know, I needed a, <laughs> I, I needed a drink. And we, uh, I remember we were sitting somewhere in some place in Monterey, Mexico, and uh, I, uh, I ended up losing my car. In fact, I was sitting on my car trying to find my car, come to find out. But <laughs> I lost my car in Mexico, and I had to be carried up to the room, and, uh, that's kind of how we started uh, this path together. Uh, you know, we were married 10 years, and uh, in the course of 10 years, we had four kids. And, you know, I don't have any funny stories to tell you about alcoholism and children. You know, I've made amends to my kids. I have a tremendous relationship with my kids. And uh, our book says that... Uh, our past can be our greatest asset, and we can make peace with that. It would be different than we were. But I can't go back and teach the lessons that I didn't teach. I can't uh, be the father that I wasn't. And so uh, I can't just say I've made amends to my kids. What I have to do is make a living amends every day uh, to let them know uh, that there's a different way to live. The gift that I've gotten 
out of this program is is that uh, as they've progressed through this program, every one of them have come to me and said, Dad, we know AA works because we've seen it work in you. And so uh, I've made, to my best ability, amends to those kids. We moved out to Arizona, and uh, we were living in Flagstaff at the time. And I got up... Uh, Got up one morning, went to work, I had a great day at work, and we were going to go hiking up in Utah this weekend, and and I came home from work, and I decided on the way home, you know, I'm going to stop and have a couple of drinks, and I stopped, and I had two drinks, and two led to four, four led to some more, and I brought some stuff home, my wife was mad at me, and she uh, uh got upset with me, and my son had broken the hood ornament off of my car, and I was mad about that, and I grabbed my daughter, put her in a car, and I was going to go to Colorado for the weekend, you know. I didn't like the way I was being treated, and uh, as I pulled out of the driveway, my wife called the police, and uh, I pulled out on Route 66, and two police cars pulled in behind me and took my daughter, one of them took my daughter crying, screaming back home to her mom, put me in the back of that police car, and I remember sitting back in the back seat of that car with my head in my hands, not knowing how I got here, not knowing how my life turned out this way. All I was going to do is have two drinks, and here I am. I'm going to jail. My whole my whole evening has changed. And I remember that police officer turning to me, and he said something to me that I'll never forget. He says, you know, sometimes the worst thing that happens to you turns out to be the best. You just don't know how it's going to play out. He took me down to Coconino County Jail. The next morning, I got a, I had a chance. I had a spiritual experience. I got a chance to meet Judge Helen B. Gonzalez. And uh, I remember we were herded into her courtroom, and there was about six or seven of us. Most of these guys were Native Americans. They lived in boxcars, and they were obviously alcoholic. Uh, I was there by mistake. I had had a little bit too much to drink, but they were alcoholic. Um, but I remember she read the charges. I, we were all chained together, and I don't remember uh, what the charges were against them. But uh, I remember when she got to me, she looked over the top of her paper. She read my charges, and uh, and she gave me a look that let me know what kind of an individual she thought I was. Went back to the, uh, the jail cell. There was a compound. Guy sits down next to me, and he says, I was in court with you today. And you know, if you're having problems with your drinking, why don't you try AA? It worked for him. Now, it never occurred to me to ask him, if AA is working, why are you in jail? <laughs> but uh, that that was my 12-step call. Uh, probably, uh, you know, if he would have said that a week earlier or a week later, it may not have resonated, but... Uh, I got hold of a bail bondsman. I made had one phone call. I called my wife, and she didn't answer, which was good. Uh, I called a bail bondsman, wrote him a hot check. And, uh, in fact, I had him take me home. And um, I got home, and I, uh, I took his advice. I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I talked to a wonderful lady by the name of Alice on the hotline for about an hour, and I told her my story, and I said, am I an alcoholic? She said, I don't know. There's a meeting tonight. And that was September 1977, and I uh, I went to my first meeting in the basement of a church in Flagstaff, Arizona. And I still remember the fluorescent lights flickering and a little bit of a musty smell and these pale yellow walls. And there were seven people in that room. Guy comes in, sits down, and he seems kind of happy. He's definitely happier than I was. I was eight hours out of Coconino County Jail, and he... He said, my name's Cliff. I'm an alcoholic. And I thought to myself, that's an odd way to introduce yourself. And uh, when everybody hollered back with that, hi, Cliff, you know, and I, I jumped. Uh, he caught me off guard. And I said, I don't know what I got myself into, uh, but this is going to be different. Uh, but I remember when uh, they called on everybody, and everybody knew I was new. They got to me. And when they finally got to me, and after I'd heard their stories, I said, you know, I'm Jim. I think I'm an alcoholic. And I broke down. And I'd, um, I was talking a little bit about I got a a little bit of a blur, four pages back in the police log, you know, about an inch tall. After the meeting, a guy came over to me by the name of Bill Zick, and I was telling him about, you know, I made the police log, and he says, well, let me tell you what it's like to make the front page. <laughs> and, 
And, you know, I needed to hear that. I needed to know that there were other people like me. I needed to know that there were people that, uh, that were, have done the things that I've done, and I didn't have to be ashamed about that. And I, um, I didn't stay sober. I didn't do anything. I wasn't going to meetings. I didn't have a sponsor. Didn't have a book. I stayed sober three months on fear alone. And, uh, we, uh, we moved out to, uh, uh, Arkansas on a construction job. And I remember I used to carry some cards with me that had the, uh, the, the steps and the traditions and a serenity prayer on it. I carry a couple of them in my pocket. And I'd be sitting at a bar and there'd be some guy sitting next to me and I'd get out one of those cards and slide it, slide it over to him. You know, if you're having problems with your drinking, why don't you try a, you know, it doesn't work for me, but maybe it'll work for you. And you'd pick up that card and look at it, slide it back to you. I've tried a, it doesn't work for me either. So, uh, you know, but we went back out to Flagstaff, uh, Arizona, and, and I used to say that I, I decided I was going to drink myself to death, but I don't really think, I think that's an exaggeration. What I was really doing, I just resolved myself to the fact that I never wanted to come back to AA. I never thought I'd ever come back here. And uh, I got up uh, one Saturday morning, and it wasn't much different than uh, than any other Saturday morning. I went down to the Circle K, had a couple of beers, and... Uh, Came home, got my kids, and uh, I figured that if I stayed at the park with them all day, I don't know if I was just trying to be a good dad or if I was just trying to make sure I could have a little bit to drink during the day, but we were going to go down to Sedona that night. And um, I knew if my wife was drinking with me, uh, she'd be watching her drinking, wouldn't be paying any attention to me. And, and we did. We had a few drinks. We came back up to Flagstaff, left the kids in the car, and we were sitting in the in the back of... Uh, in some bar, got in another fight about something, and she took off somewhere, and I was riding around town trying to find her with those kids in the car, and I pulled into a grocery store, bought a fifth of Reuniti wine, just in case she wanted to be romantic when she came home. And uh, and she didn't. Uh, you know, I uh, I got home and uh, got the kids to bed. I, you know, called the police. You've seen my wife? You know, no, we haven't seen her. We don't want you out looking for her either. And I... Uh, Got those kids to bed, and I ended up drinking three-quarters of a fifth of wine, passing out. And she called me the next day, and I went out and got her. And uh, I remember I slept most of the day. It was a Sunday morning, and I went outside about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And it was a beautiful day in Flagstaff. There was snow on the ground. It was 20 degrees. There was blue skies, clouds. And my whole life was gray and empty and didn't have any color to it at all, and I didn't know how I got to be the man that I was. And it's kind of like Bill Wilson talks about in his story where you're surrounded by quicksand, and there's no way out. What he says three lines down is how dark it is just before the dawn. And I didn't know what lay ahead, but I went back to the bedroom, and I told my wife, I said, uh, you know, I don't uh, don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going back to Alcoholics Anonymous. I can't live like this. And I started this path. That's February 18th, 1979. And I came in, and I did things a little different when I came in. I uh, I got a sponsor. I met a man by the name of Bill Lyman. And Bill was a kind man, but he never once told me, let us love you till you can love yourselves. He, uh, <laughs> what he did is he gave me a copy of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. and said, if you do what's in this book, you have a chance of staying sober. And... Uh, I came from an era, he was 24 years sober at the time, he had met Bill Wilson a couple of times, but I came from an era to where old timers at that time used to call newcomers pigeons, and I was Bill's pigeon, and you know, we go into a cafe and Bill put his arm around me and he introduced me to his cronies, this is Jim, he's my new pigeon, and I said, like, I hate that, you know, I hated being a pigeon. Uh, but you know, looking back on it now, those some of the kindest things he ever did for me. Um, he used to invite me out to his house on Sunday afternoons, and his wife, uh, he married a, a black lady, and uh, he had adopted her two daughters, and uh, uh, he had his smotsies out there playing dominoes. I hated dominoes, you know, but Bill knew I didn't need to be sitting home alone thinking, trying to figure this thing out, and, and I said, well, I can't go. Uh, I've got kids. He said, well, bring the kids, and I remember uh, his wife and those two daughters of his uh, watched my kids well. I sit there and play dominoes with these guys I didn't like, you know. And, uh, but uh, 
To this day, I, um, whenever I get back to Arizona, I always make a little trip up north to Mountain Air, and I take the loop through that little community, and I sit out in front of uh, 223 Kiowa Street. And I, uh, I pause for about half an hour, and I thank the God of my understanding for the path that I've been on. I look out across to that little A-frame where I did my fifth step, and I thank God for the man that carried the message to me and how fortunate I've been to be here this long. You know, not everybody gets to do this. Page uh, 29 of our book says, Each person in his own way describes from his own point of view how he established his relationship with God. I don't know much about God, but what little I know has changed my life. I uh, grew up Southern Baptist, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to have that God. Uh, that didn't, you know, I saw the stuff on the wall that you're not supposed to do, and I was doing all that stuff, and I was enjoying doing it. So that 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 God and I were, you know, every time Jesus turned his back, I was off and running, you know. Uh, but I... Uh, I started this path, uh, you know, and I love the way our book puts it. So God either is or he isn't. Boy, you can't, can't get around that one, you know, uh, not much room to move on that. They close every loophole that it takes, to, uh, to find a way to stay sober. I remember one night I came in, I was about three or four months sober, and I came in, uh, after a meeting and I went down, to the bedroom of my youngest son, and I got down on my knees. He's sitting here tonight. Got down on my knees, and I asked the God of my understanding. I said, I know that I'm losing my wife, my kids, my family, and I don't have any right to those things. But if you keep me sober, I'll do the best that I can. And I started this path. And somehow I knew when I got up that I was going to be okay. I didn't know how, I didn't know when, but I knew I was going to be okay. And... Uh, our book says that God doesn't make terms too hard for those uh, who seek Him. And it suggests that maybe why don't you choose your own concept of God. And uh, the concept that I chose of God was uh, a loving Father. A God that has my best interest in heart that wants the best for me. And I got to that realization for a simple reason. I have four children. There's absolutely nothing that those kids have ever done or could do that would keep me from loving them. I've had kids that's been on the streets, living under bridges. I've had kids with their needles in their arms. Uh, I wouldn't hear from some of them for maybe nine months to a year. I get calls from L.A. County Jail Collect, King County Jail Collect. I used to get calls from a detective down in downtown Seattle saying, uh, saw your daughter last week. She's alive. I just want to let you know that uh, she said to call you. And here's my number. Call me if I can help you. You know, those kind of calls I got all the time. I've uh, got a son in prison. And uh, I didn't stop loving him when he went to prison. Uh, what I've told him every time I write him, I say, son, I love you. I'm proud you're my son. But the bad thing about this is if you don't use this to help others, it'll be wasted. But uh, I didn't, I've never, nothing's happened with my kids that uh, I've never loved them. So if I'm able to do that, I've got to have this power that I'm going to put my sobriety and my life in to walk this path with me. He better, he better have my best interest at heart. If I'm ever questioning the power of God, I got a call one time uh, in October about 10 years ago from a drug dealer in Cabo San Lucas. That's not one of my more common calls. Uh, <laughs> but I got a uh a call from a drug dealer in Cabo, and he says, uh, your daughter's down here, and she's doing some things that she's going to get in a lot of trouble. She's hanging around some people that are bad, and if she doesn't, uh, I don't get her out of here, she's going to die. Um, I'm willing to put her on a plane tomorrow morning from Cabo to Phoenix if you would be willing to get her from Phoenix to Seattle. When I took that phone call, I happened to be in Phoenix. I uh, had originally planned the trip for August or early September, but for no reason, I changed my flight to October. And see, I believe in a God that says, okay, 
that, that trip to Phoenix coincided with that phone call. I can't intellectualize that kind of stuff. And I started this path. And uh, there's a story about a priest that uh, I love. It's, I think it talks about uh, God's love. I think it talks about the love we have in Alcoholics Anonymous better than anything that I've ever heard. It's, uh, he always taught his congregation about uh, the love of God. But he was going home from his parish one night, and he went through an alley. And as he went through the alley, he came across a drunk lying in the alley. And he had great compassion for the drunk. But he became angry, and he cried out. He said, I thought you were a God of love. If you're a God of love, how can you allow this man to live like this? The answer that he got back was, son, I do love him. That's why I sent you to him. See, I believe everybody in this room has somebody here waiting for him. You know, uh, you know, we don't, we don't just get here and are abandoned. It was kind of like that little story in the, uh, one of the meditations for the day in the 24 hour a day book. You rescue someone from drowning in a sea, you drag them on the shore. You don't bring them back to life only to throw them back in the ocean and drown again. You take them and you, you help them get well. And that's what's happened here. Um, I think uh, for me it was a man by the name of Bill Lyman. For Al it was Jack Allen Ball Orville. I mean, other people can pick, you know, Vince. It was another Vince that was here for him. Everybody has somebody here that kind of paves this way for us. And uh, and if you're new, you're in a very good place. Page 100 of our book says, When we look back, we see where when we put ourselves in God's hands, things worked out better than we could have expected, regardless of our present circumstances. I've been here long enough to have a lot of present circumstances come my way, but in 1979, I was losing my wife, my kids. I had knots in my stomach. I didn't have any right to those things anymore. I couldn't sit in a room alone for the first five years. It was only the laughter in Alcoholics Anonymous that kept me coming back, and the just the warmth that you find in these rooms when you walk in of being okay. But I was losing everything um, I remember uh, we moved to Seattle, and I went to, uh, I hired an attorney. I spent $150 hiring an attorney. And I went to him, and I said, what are the chances of me getting my kids back and raising my kids? And he says, well, and this is 1979. He said, first of all, dads don't raise kids. The second thing is your wife inherited a lot of money, and uh, you can't fight that kind of money. And besides that, with your alcoholism, zero. Cut the best deal you can and be glad you got it. I did my work in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, my wife at the time took a different trip, took a different uh, path with sobriety, took a different path with uh, the kids. I ended up raising four kids by myself, single parent. That's not supposed to happen to a guy sitting in the back of a police car not knowing how he is going to jail just because he couldn't control his drinking. But I started this path. You know, 1979, my life is entirely different today. Oh, every one of those kids I have a relationship with. I get a chance to sit in meetings with all four of my kids. Not the one that's in prison, but I have a relationship with him. My kids call me and say, Dad, can we meet you at a meeting? My daughter will call me. And say, you know, my home group's Empire Way. She says, I'm going to Empire Way tonight. Would you, uh, would you meet me there? I was uh, texting my son before the football game today, which was a bad deal. Um, <laughs> I, was t- I was thinking on the way over here, I hope this talk goes better than that game. <laughs> but uh, but I was, uh, I was texting my son, and uh, I told him I was speaking tonight, and he called me back, and he says, Dad, so cool. And I texted him back, and I said, you know, what a privilege to share sobriety with your children. And he texted me back and said, you know, Dad, I'm in tears because we're lucky. You know, I uh, I can't tell you how grateful I am for the gift that I've been given to stay sober, 
the gift that I've been given just to sit in these rooms. Uh, I'm partnered with a lady that, uh, other than my children, my sobriety is the most important person in my life and uh, has made the biggest difference in my life of anybody I've ever known. Uh, we've been together for 19 years. We're going to get married. Uh, we waited for a reason, but... Uh, <laughs> Met her in an AA meeting. I, I saw her across the room and um, I was kind of looking. <laughs> I followed her to the coffee pot and, and, you know, saw her the next night, asked her out. She made the mistake of giving me her number, I called her. And um, we had two dates and uh, then we had one date a year for the next five years. But I knew she was the one that I was going to spend my life with. And I've been blessed. We get to share this program together and share, uh, you know, she's done a lot for my children and really been a force for uh, their well-being. My life is entirely different than it was when I walked through these these rooms, and it's all because of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's all because I've done my work here. It's all because I've stayed. There was a guy that talked at this podium. He was, maybe I liked him because he was from Texas. Maybe I just liked the message. But he said, come all the way in, sit all the way down, and stay. That kind of makes sense. I came all the way in. I've sat all the way down. I've never taken a break from Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of reminded of what my friend Melvin P. used to say, you know, you, you go to meetings, you hear about what happens to people who don't go to meetings. And uh, there's a lot to that. Uh, you know, I, uh, if you're new here tonight, and you're just starting out this path with us, uh, please stay with us. Uh, there's nothing in this room that's going to hurt you. There's nothing in the big book that's going to hurt you. And you're going to find a life here beyond your wildest dreams. You just don't know it. You just have to stay here. I'm fortunate enough to look back and see where the change took place and see where I'm sitting here now with 38 years of sobriety. But that's not what I had when I got here. My life was empty and lonely, and I didn't have any any purpose in life. Today, I have a purpose in life. So if you're new here tonight, I'll offer to you what was offered to me 38 years ago. And that's quite simply that if you tried to quit drinking and you can't, and you've tried everything you know how to do, and it hasn't worked, before you give up, try it our way. Oh, you're going to be okay. Again, I want to thank Pixie for asking me to speak tonight. I'm very honored, and thank you all for being here. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much. 